Tonight I'd like to talk about more aspects of working with the Rigpa practice as we've been doing over the last couple of days. The first thing that I want to talk about is the relationship with emotions, particularly difficult emotions. And today, for the first time in the retreat, people started to talk to me about some difficult emotions that were coming during the retreat. And I was quite happy to hear it. Um, Because I was getting worried that the retreat wasn't working. Because unless it engages some difficult aspect of the mind, I don't feel that, it, that it's going deep, deeply enough. And one of the most um, observable characteristics of a proper retreat, in my view, is that it reaches down and brings us to some kind of edge and we have to find new tools to uh, relate with that. So that seemed to start happening today, at least for some people, and so I was encouraged. So, what do we do in this practice working with uh, difficult emotions when they come? This is from the Flight of the Garuda. Without following thoughts, relax naturally and rest in the state of mind itself. Without a doubt, thoughts will vanish spontaneously. Right? (laughs) Mm, Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It doesn't always work like that in practice. And it reminds me of a friend who was uh, teaching a retreat in Burma for Westerners alongside a Burmese Sayadaw. It's something that happens every year in January. A couple of our friends go over and teach. The, um, it's a unique opportunity to hear uh, Western teachers, side-by-side Burmese teachers, all in the Vipassana lineage. Because it's in a Burmese monastery, there are translators around and people who are helping to support the monastery. A number of them come to hear the Dharma talks. So one of the Burmese gentlemen came up to my friend after the retreat and said, you know, I really enjoyed working, uh, listening to your, your Dharma talks while I was on this retreat because you described so eloquently how to work with anger, how to work with fear, how to work with judgment. It's very helpful. Our teachers don't talk to us about these things. So my friend said, well, what do they tell you to do? And the Burmese man said, well, the Sayadaw says, when anger arises, note it three times and it will go away. (laughs) And my friend said, that wouldn't work for Westerners. And he said, it doesn't work for us either. (laughs) So she then said, what do you do then? And he said, oh, well, then we say, oh, never mind. Which is kind of beautiful. You know, it's kind of that underlying equanimity. The emotion's there. I applied what was supposed to be the antidote. It didn't go away. Oh, well, never mind. There's a great deal of acceptance underlying that. So with Rigpa practice also, we may have the intention to turn to Rigpa and see what the liberating influence will be. Or if, as it's sometimes said in this tradition, the thought or the emotion will liberate itself. But that may not always happen. We can feel discouraged at this point that emotions are coming and perhaps coming strongly. We may feel at times that they block our access to Rigpa or block our development. So I also wanted to read this from The Flight of the Garuda. 
It is said in the teachings and life stories of the masters of the past, quote, the more emotions and thoughts, the more dharmakaya, end quote. You should know that this is how it is. The more emotions and thoughts, the more dharmakaya. Dharmakaya refers to the emptiness aspect of mind. So they're saying that even if you struggle a lot in the beginning, that's what opens the door for the depth of dharmakaya later. So don't be concerned if emotions are coming. It's an integral part of what we're doing here and leads to the deepening of the practice. I've seen this time and time and time again in Vipassana retreats. And I remember very clearly the first Dzogchen retreat where something like this happened to me. We were a few days into the retreat, four or five days into a nine-day retreat up in Santa Rosa. And I was doing my yogi job in the kitchen. I was washing pots or potatoes or something. I was, I was by a sink. And I was trying to apply the Rigpa practice consistently and touch into the empty awareness and doing it fairly regularly. And as I was there at the sink and practicing, I felt this kind of wave of energy start to come up and it kind of hit my chest and it made a kind of explosion there. And it didn't have a lot of emotion with it, but it was just as though some bubble had come up. Rinpoche talked today about the burp. You know, it was a little bit just like this energy coming up from somewhere and it came up and then the sense was that it just passed through me. Leading up to that, my mind had been quite calm and still. And then this energy came up, kind of passed through, but it was a very, it felt like a big release. Even though there wasn't a lot of emotion with it, it felt like a big release. Then for about the next day and a half, my mind was just a whirlwind. Just going and running into past and future and thoughts and plans and greed and aversion and I couldn't really settle it, not through connecting with mind essence, not through sustaining mindfulness. Mind was just stirred up. But I'd seen this pattern so many times, I really wasn't worried. I I know in Vipassana practice, it's just part of the purification that happens. When the heart and mind settle to a new level of peace, and in that peace a kind of contentment, it opens the door for something else to come, if there's anything else down there. Which, you know, you may have exhausted the karma bank, but just on the slight chance that you haven't, what opens the door for the karma bank is this state of peace and calm. Why? Because the heart feels safe to release what it's been, what it's been holding. Sylvia Borstein, who is a good friend and we teach together regularly, put it like this, When they want to do a launch from Cape Kennedy, they don't launch when the sky is cloudy. They launch the spacecraft when the sky is clear. So similarly, the heart wants to unload its burden when the skies are clear. So when the mind settles into some new level of peace, contentment, happiness, then the heart says, okay, now you can hold this too. And that's when the purification part starts to come through. And when it comes through and we can be with it, with that really accepting attitude, which Rinpoche exemplified by hug and kiss, not resist it, but really allow it into our awareness, it's that contact, that friendly contact, that allows it to come up and then pass out. 
That is the delete button for the karmic bank. One of the beauties of intensive retreats is that they allow the mind to settle enough that that cycle can take place. And I like to call this the cycle of purity, which is the increasing calm and peace, and purification, which is the release of the difficult stored contents of the heart and mind. Then, as I just practiced with that kind of wave of energy and agitation that had been triggered in that retreat, I knew not to mess with it very much. I knew not to be worried about it. I knew not to try to make it go away. So for a couple of days, I was just in a whirlwind, and that was okay. That's just the way the mind was. And then after a couple of days, it settled again to a deeper level of peace because there was not so much underlying agitation in the mind or body. So these are the cycles that happen in retreat. And the opportunity is there for us to learn to relate to these difficult emotions in a wise way. So what should we do when they come? There are really two approaches. I'd kind of like to read again from Flight of the Garuda, which is the same song, Song 13, to illustrate that. For beginners, when emotional thought states arise too powerfully, it is beneficial first to analyze and then to rest. These are the oral instructions, so keep them in your heart. I take this as the encouragement first to practice, you could call it shamatha or you could call it mindfulness, with the emotion directly. After doing that for a while, then to rest. So in a way, I take this as an encouragement first to do what we would call vipassana practice. And after you've done that for a while, you've hugged and kissed, then you can rest because some of the charge is out. So in the way that we teach, we have a a little formula, you might say, for how to relate skillfully with an emotion. So I'd like to share that now. It's an acronym called RAIN. R-A-I-N. And it stands for four steps in relating to a difficult emotion using mindfulness. The first is to recognize it. The second is to accept it. The third is to become interested in it or investigate. This is kind of the analytical piece. And the, the N is non-identify. Recognize, accept, be interested, non-identify. Recognize means we know this emotion for what it is. Accept means we just open ourselves up and feel it completely. And a good place to do that is in the body. If you feel a strong emotion, it's going to have an impact in the body somewhere. Rinpoche's talked a lot about the connection between the subtle body and the moods and emotions. So it will reflect in the body. So let your attention go to where you feel the emotion strongly in the body and ground there. Grounding there will give a good place for connection. You'll feel the body and you'll feel the emotion back and forth. Become interested. This is a way to approach it in a friendly manner. This is part of hug and kiss. Become interested. What is fear? What is anger? What does this feel like in the body, in the mind? What kind of thoughts does it make me think? Don't follow the contents of the thought, but just notice the pattern. 
Non-identify means we don't claim it as I or mine. This is not my personality. This is not who I am. I am not an angry person because I'm having some anger at this moment. I don't even have to say my anger. I don't have to own it at all. We just see it as a passing cloud. Anger arises, persists for a while, and passes away. So these steps, with relation to the emotions that are coming, let us get some degree of wisdom and awareness around them. We're making a direct connection with the state itself, and we're kind of developing a way to hold it with wisdom and mindfulness. Then, once that has happened, then you can turn back to mind essence again, and you may be able to rest, as the song in the Garuda indicates. Analyze first. Relate, get to know it, open, be friendly. Then see if that creates enough space that you can recognize mind essence. Okay. I think that's all I want to say at this point about relating with emotions. Just to know that it's an integral part of the practice. You can use two different tools with them. Try both and see which is most helpful. So the second thing that I want to cover tonight in talking about the practice we've been doing, I alluded to last night, I want to talk about some different techniques for this first step of looking. Rinpoche said again this morning that there are these four steps in Tolka Urgen Rinpoche's method of look, see, rest, and liberate. And he's talked about three or four different ways to look. As I said last night, I think it's good to have a range. Different ones will work for different people. Different ones will work at different times for you. So try a bunch and see which ones connect best for you. So he introduced... Uh, Tolka Ergen's way of looking. He introduced this, the word drop or let go. He introduced the hand going back into the sleeve. Talked about all of those. So here's some other ones. One that um, people in the West have connected with often is aware of awareness. You know, basically you want to turn the attention from being fixated on objects to becoming aware of the mind itself, the knowing mind itself. So this phrase, aware of awareness, helps people to turn. And when you're ready, you just drop in that phrase rather than, you know, any visual image or the word drop. Just drop in the phrase, aware of awareness, and just see where it takes you. Another one that Rinpoche mentioned briefly, I don't know if he talked about it in this context, was uh, pulling the eyes toward the back of the head. Having the sense that the eyes are gravitating back toward the back of the skull. So there's that sense of pulling back from the outer fixation. One of the subtle uh, forms of ego that comes in doing this practice, and I think it's very common in the early stages, is as you're sitting there and you make the move into this open and empty awareness, there's still the sense that there's somebody looking. Someone mentioned this in an interview group today. There's a sense of an observer or a watcher or a looker 
who is having the experience of looking through the eyes and receiving the visual impressions, hearing the sounds, and so forth. This is extra. The sense of, I am the looker, I am the watcher, is something extra. And what's actually going on is an identification with the factor of cognizance. Cognizance is happening, but the ego is coming in and laying claim to it. Oh, that's me. I'm not the body, you know, I'm not the external phenomena, I'm not the thoughts and emotions. Oh, I see what I really am. I really am the one who's looking. I'm the observer. In a way, you know, this is not a bad intermediate step for the ego to take. Because normally what it's doing is running around and claiming sense impressions as me or mine. It'll claim body, thoughts, and emotions as me. It'll claim outer things as mine. And either grab to, to bring forward or push away. So stepping to awareness can cut through that. Saying, if you say, I am awareness, then all this other stuff is just coming and going within you, and you don't have to get involved with it. You know, awareness doesn't get involved with its contents. So identifying with awareness has an advantage, but it's, it's not clear seeing. So as an intermediate step or strategy, that's okay. And as a phase of Rigpa practice, don't worry about that. Don't worry if that comes in. But there is still a level of, of unclarity in that the eye hasn't been seen through because, let's face it, awareness isn't yours or mine. It's not individual. Awareness is just awareness. And it's part of Buddha nature, so it's common to all of us. So the eye is extra. If you'd like to kind of play around with looking at the eye, then here's another way to look. And that is to say, just drop in a question like, who is watching? Or who is looking? If it feels like it's the thinker, then you could say, who is thinking? And see if that takes the emptiness a little bit further. See if that cuts through the identification just a little more. Another way to say this is looking at the looker. These two are almost synonymous. Who is looking or look at the looker or look at the thinker. Now hopefully when you do that, you go to look at the looker, what should you find? Nothing. And then you're back in emptiness. You're back at a a slightly uh, more complete level of emptiness. Okay, just a few few more. This is a phrase that uh, Joseph Goldstein came up with and shared with me. I don't think he'd mind my sharing it. The phrase is, mind of no clinging. Mind of no clinging. So when you're ready to apply a technique to look, just say that phrase. Drop that phrase in and see what happens. The mind part connects with awareness. The no clinging part helps cut through fixation or grasping so it opens up emptiness.
Here's one from the tradition. Relax and rest loosely. This is from the Dzogchen tradition. Relax and rest loosely. I used this phrase a lot at one point in my practice, and I, I found it really helpful because it's really useful independent of conditions. If the mind is peaceful, you say, relax and rest loosely, and you're sort of there. If the mind's agitated and thoughts are up and emotions are up, you say, relax and rest loosely, and it sort of lets you disentangle a bit from it. So you can use it either way, if the mind's calm, if the mind's stirred up. Another one that Rinpoche mentioned a little bit today in passing is the syllable pet. This is a very traditional method in Dzogchen practice. It's meant to be applied especially when the yogi's mind is really preoccupied in thoughts. When conceptual thoughts are running, 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 and you don't find a way to step out of them, then it's recommended to say pet in a very loud voice. And if you're out practicing somewhere in the wilderness, you can really shout it. And it's said to cut through the chain of thoughts. I was sitting in a retreat one time with a different Dzogchen teacher, not Sogni Rinpoche. This teacher liked to have his class use the exclamation pet in the group format. (laughs) So we would be sitting all together... And the teacher would instruct us, when I count three, everybody shout at the top of your lungs, pat. So the hall would be very still. We'd be in a period of sitting meditation. And he would say, one, two, three. And everybody would shout as loud as they could, pat. You know, and the hall would just kind of vibrate. It cut through a lot of conceptual thinking. It was, it was very effective. Well, one of my friends came to the retreat a day late. (laughs) And she hadn't heard the initial instruction. So she was sitting at an afternoon sitting, and the teacher goes, one, two, three, and the whole room just erupted in pet. And I I was sitting next to her, and I could still hear her. She did this little whimper. (laughs) And almost levitated off her zafu because... She was so shocked by it. But I'm sure it cut through her conceptualization, too. So you could try just saying to yourself, imagine you're saying in a very loud voice if you're sitting in the hall. Pat, okay? Don't shout it. Then someone asked today, you know, does there always have to be this uh, conscious technique applied Uh, to do the looking. Does it always have to be like that? Because isn't that a a subtle form of grasping, a form of effort and will? And I think what Rinpoche said was that, well, you only do that when you've fallen into distraction, and that means grasping is already present. So one more little bit of effort doesn't, doesn't really matter. But what I have noticed is that over time, the tools to do the looking get more and more subtle. You get used, you just get used to this turning and connecting with mind essence over and over. So in the first, at first, the tools I used were, were pretty gross, or big, let's say big. And then over time, 
they could get subtler and subtler because it didn't need much of a nudge to get back to that place. So finally, what I mostly do now is just a very subtle intention to see again. You could just say the intention to look or the intention to see, and then I'm back. So over time, see if the movement of turning can kind of get lighter. Someone asked in a retreat once, well, in my experience, different techniques lead to different experiences. And you'll find this is, this is somewhat true, probably. Different of these methods of look will lead to slightly different effects in the mind and body. They said, which one is right? The way I understand it is that what you want to look for, if different techniques are giving a little different experiences, is the common denominator. So look at what they share. And what they share over time will converge. So all these techniques will converge on authentic Rigpa over time. And you can just feel free to use whichever ones strike your interest or seem effective for you. And as I say, try different ones at different times. So then the next question is, what happens when we look? And as I mentioned last night, I had a lot of questions in the beginning about whether what I saw was really Rigpa or not. And I, I went to Rinpoche you know, with a lot of questions that were trying to figure this out. I was basically asking him to confirm my experience. Is it like this? Is it like that? Is this it? Is that it? And he always refused to, just as he has here. Because ultimately, we have to figure it out for ourselves. And he can't, he can't tell. But some of the questions that I used to hear in the hall were things like, oh, when I, when I do the looking technique, I get a buzzing in my ears. Is that Rigpa? <laughs> or um, my body tingles. You know, is that what Rigpa really is? And, you know, you probably heard a number of these and found your own. And, of course, the thing is that no particular phenomenon is Rigpa because Rigpa is empty cognizance. It doesn't have a color or a shape or form because it can go with anything. So this is what Rinpoche meant when he said this afternoon, it's a state beyond states. Or another way of saying it is you can't really say that it's a state of mind because it's more like a container for states of mind or a perspective on states of mind, that which holds states of mind. So it can go with any state of mind. It can go with a buzzing in the ears. It can go with silence in the ears. It can go with a body that's light. It can go with a body that's heavy. Understanding this helped me not look to repeat an experience because the outcome isn't supposed to be one particular way. There's no way to describe a particular state that's supposed to happen when you look. So that, that's what let me know I didn't need to hang on to one memory that seemed to work. Because the next time it might be different depending on what the state of my mind and body was at that point. So it's just, you know, it's like clear water that doesn't have any 
flavor of its own, but you can add any flavor to it. It can go with anything, so it can reveal anything. So if the mind is happy or sad or calm or agitated, Rigpa can be with, with all of that. And it sort of takes on the coloring of what is the state of mind itself. Something else that people often report in starting the practice is, uh, and I think Rinpoche alluded to this today, uh, feels like a lot of energy is coming up. As I, as I turn and look or drop, feels like a lot of energy comes. Is that Rigpa? In that case, I'd say that it, it's kind of a sign of letting go. It's probably the dropping that has released some of the holding. You know, that dead drop that he was talking about. When we do the dead drop, sometimes, and hopefully not drop dead, but sometimes that will release things that we've been holding for a while. And so strong energies can come up when we learn better how to let go. Those energies can come if we're in Rigpa. They could come if we're not in Rigpa because they may be mostly a sign of the letting go. So again, I'd say it might be a sign that Rigpa is happening, but it's not the thing itself. And then over time, as more and more of the held energies get released, when one turns and looks, there's not so much of anything that comes up. Because uh, there's been a release of what's been held, and there's not an infinite supply of stuff that has to be released. So the experience gets calmer and more ordinary. The last thing I want to talk about are some uh, what I'd call near relatives of Rigpa. As we turn to Rigpa... There are often some other states that come in that aren't Rigpa that we might think are Rigpa in the beginning. And don't worry that these things come in. These are not bad things. It's just as you continue to practice, your own understanding will clarify what's exactly Rigpa and what's not. So these are just some of the things that that I went through in... uh, in the clarification of the view. So one is having a line of subconscious chatter going on and not recognizing it as distraction or as chatter. Thoughts can come and go. If they're seen clearly, it's not a problem. But there would be this line of ongoing chatter, commentary, past, future, that I wasn't really aware of. And when there's an ongoing chain, that's moved into discursive thinking, and that takes away a bit from the Rigpa. So if that happens, you can turn, if you'd like, just turn the attention to the thoughts for a little while, which is a form of shamatha or vipassana. Become aware of those, and that will often take some of the frequency out of them. In other words, incorporate them into the awareness. Another thing that I fell into was 
once I had looked and seen, then trying to prolong the Rigpa, trying to make it last longer. Because this is a, it's kind of a virtue in mindfulness practice. The first two uh, factors of concentration, as we practice it, are connecting with the object and sustaining the attention on the object. So we're taught that it's wholesome to sustain that attention. But with Rigpa, it's not the right thing to do. If we are in the seeing, and then we move into the resting, but we try to make it last longer, we've fallen into fabrication and effort again. So this is a subtle kind of effort that comes in that we may not notice and that we think is wholesome. So I used to say something like, just stay in Rigpa as long as you can. But that's the wrong way to say it. A much better way to say it is, let it stay as long as it stays. So we're not involved, really, with how long it stays. That depends on the current strength of Rigpa and our past practice, the accumulated force of our practice depends how long it stays. That's why Rinpoche has said a few times, don't worry about length, aim for short periods many times. When he says short periods, he doesn't mean short sitting periods. He doesn't mean come in, sit for five minutes, go out to walk. Come back in for five minutes, go out to walk. Sit for 45 minutes, fine, but each time you go into Rigpa, don't worry if if it doesn't stay long. Let it be a short experience, but let it be a really clear experience, and aim to have that many times within, say, a 45-minute sitting. Don't mind how many times you look. When you've um, looked, seen, rested, and failed to liberate, that means distraction has come back in, then don't hesitate to apply again the technique of looking. So do that many times, and don't worry how long it lasts. Another thing that I used to do was to um, project that Rigpa was in front of me. Because there's talk of openness, spaciousness, emptiness. So I'd project it out in front to get away from what didn't feel spacious, which was tension in my body. And I'd look for it to be out there. But in doing that, I was trying to leave behind the body. And that's not, so, that's not so helpful. So check to see if you've taken the body with you when you move into Rigpa. Just take a look back and see if it's come along for the journey. Or if you have an idea that Rigpa should only be in front and kind of disembod- a disembodied experience. And then take a look how Rinpoche sits when he's meditating. You know, or when he's teaching, it's not very different. He's very in his body, very grounded, very connected. So once I got the idea that the body should come with me into Rigpa, then I made another kind of false move, which was I kind of, because I I had such a strong habit from Vipassana practice of mindfulness of body. So then I kind of, practiced Rigpa of body, which is a contradiction in terms. Okay, this is not the right way to do it. 
But I was very, uh, I felt very centered, very grounded. Uh, the, what I thought was Rigpa sustained itself for a long time. And I thought, wow, this is so easy now. But what I was actually doing was feeling my body. And there was, at that point, there was a smooth, harmonious energy in the body that I was thinking was the ongoing empty awareness. But I'd actually localized it and fastened it onto an object. So take a look at this relationship between space and body as you do it and realize that uh, Rigpa needs to encompass both. It does encompass both. Because we use this word empty and open a lot, Rigpa often gets identified with space and this quality of mind of spaciousness. So in a retreat, once somebody asked Rinpoche, is this practice basically about spaciousness? You might think what you would answer to that. Anyway, Rinpoche's answer was, no, spaciousness is not the key point. The key point is groundlessness. Groundlessness or emptiness. So sometimes the focus may be small. I think someone mentioned when they were working on their computer or if you're doing your yogi job, the focus may come in. It may not be as panoramic as it is in the meditation hall, but that's, that can be very natural. So you can be with Rigpa even when the focus is naturally a little, a little more narrow. So the key point is groundlessness. That basically means emptiness, uh, insubstantiality of things. So another place that I became caught was attributing a ground to my seat. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the body does rest on the ground. Here, we're not using ground in the sense of ground path and fruition. We're using ground as meaning solid and the, the antithesis of emptiness, the opposite of emptiness. So emptiness and groundlessness are, are synonymous. But what we take for ground is usually what we stand on or what we sit on because that's what supports us and that's what we rest into physically. But that creates a false sense that that's an ultimate kind of ground. Like the earth is an ultimate kind of ground. But it's not. It's not a ground for consciousness or cognizance. Cognizance doesn't have any ground. Cognizance doesn't have an up or a down. It doesn't have a bottom. And there's nothing that it rests on. So it helped me to uncover another level of groundlessness to look at the hardness under my seat as just another sensation. Does that make sense? Okay. So we don't associate it with space. We don't associate it you know, just with space. We don't associate it just with the body. Another one that I got caught in was imagining that awareness was a separate destination apart from phenomena. And some of the phrasing leads us in this direction. There's this phrase that's often used in the tradition, rest in awareness, as though awareness is its own destination. 
for me, the place that seemed to be happening was, again, kind of out in front. You know, I'd be sitting there, and I'd go, oh, that's kind of like awareness. And it's just stable, and it's steady, it's ongoing, there's nothing else there. That must be the empty awareness that is being pointed to. But there's one other phrase in the tradition which says that three things are indivisible. Emptiness, awareness, and phenomena. So, it's not accurate to think that you're going to find awareness someplace where there aren't phenomena. Awareness and phenomena are also inseparable. We really only know awareness through its illuminating of phenomena. So, in the beginning, at least, until, you know, until there's really some depth in the knowing of Rigpa. So I realized that what I was imagining was awareness by itself was actually the knowing of physical space. So just become aware that physical space is another object that can be known. You can pay attention to it right now in the room. Think about the space between us. Ajahn Sumedho said that for a period he was interested in the analogy between Nibbana or Nirvana and space. So he did a lot of meditation on physical space. And when he would talk to somebody, it's similar to a comment that uh, someone made yesterday about the gaze of the eyes. Instead of focusing on the person or becoming aware of the person's body, he would become aware of the space between the two of them and around the two of them. So become aware that space is another phenomenon that can be known through consciousness. Someone said at the, uh, toward the end of one retreat, I've really enjoyed your teachings, Rinpoche, and uh, I realize that for me, the practice comes down to just being. That's what I've gotten out of this week, it, just being. And that, that's how I'm doing it. Just being is, is good, but does it always have wisdom in it? Because aren't babies pretty good at just being? Aren't cats and dogs pretty good at just being? But would we necessarily say that they were in Rigpa? Not necessarily. So remember that the wisdom element is a really important component. This knowing of the empty, empty cognizance. I think that's all that I wanted to talk about tonight. I'm just going to close with another reading from uh, Flight of the Garuda. This is translated by Stephen Batchelor. He hasn't done the whole book, but he's done little bits of it. Now come up close and listen. When you look carefully, you won't find the merest speck of real mind you can put your finger on and say, this is it. And not finding anything is an incredible find. Friends, to start with, mind doesn't emerge from anything. It's primordially empty. It isn't anywhere. It has no shape or color. It is finally not... Oh, in in the beginning, mind is not created by causes and finally not destroyed by external conditions. It neither grows nor gets stuck. 
It's not empty or full. Infusing peace and pain alike, it shows no preference. Ceaselessly, it reveals itself as everything, so you can't say, here it is. Not being fixed on something, not being fixed as something, it's beyond presence and absence. It neither comes nor goes, gets born nor dies. Mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. Stripped bare of samsaric error, mind itself is surely and always Buddha. <laughs> Second that, please. Okay, I'll read it one more time. Now come up close and listen. When you look carefully, you won't find the merest speck of real mind you can put your finger on and say, This is it. And not finding anything is an incredible find. Friends, to start with, mind doesn't emerge from anything, it's primordially empty. There's nothing there to hold on to. In the beginning, mind itself is not created by causes and finally not destroyed by external conditions. It neither grows nor gets stuck. It's not empty or full. Infusing peace and pain alike, it shows no preference. Ceaselessly, it reveals itself as everything, so you can't say, here it is. Not being fixed as something, it's beyond presence and absence. It neither comes nor goes, gets born nor dies. Mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. Stripped bare of samsaric error, mind itself is surely and always Buddha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.